the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Want to pause for just a moment to extend my sincerest and deepest condolences to James Blend and his family as he lost his father this weekend. His father is in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so we rejoice in that. But it's always hard to say goodbye to a loved one and particularly a parent. Um, condolences uh, to James Blend and his family would really appreciate it if you keep them in your prayers. Well, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away on Friday. She was 87. She died of complications that were related to metastatic pancreatic cancer. The Supreme Court made the announcement, Our nation has lost a jurist of historic stature, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote. We at the Supreme Court have lost a cherished colleague. Today we mourn, but with confidence that future generations will remember Ruth Bader Ginsburg as we knew her, a tireless and resolute champion of justice, end quote. Well, Ginsburg was appointed to the court by President Bill Clinton in 1993. She immediately staked out a position on the court's progressive wing and in recent years emerged as an icon on the activist left for her strike positions on abortion, gay marriage, and other major progressive causes. Her death leaves eight justices in the court just weeks before the 2020 presidential election, and it may prompt, no, it will prompt a heated partisan battle over the question of filling that vacancy, we'll talk more about that later, so close to the presidential election. And if you think back to the Obama administration, when he was in a similar position and Republicans in the Senate deprived him of a Supreme Court justice pick, it's a seat that has the potential to cement the conservative majority for decades to come. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer on Friday evening said that the seat should not be filled ahead of the election. Contrary to what he argued during the previous administration, he cited the American public's right to influence the direction of the court through the election. That was what the Republicans argued during the Obama administration. Now Schumer is arguing it on the other side of the ledger. The American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Ginsburg survived four previous bouts with cancer and the disease reemerged earlier this year in the form of lesions on her liver. I have often said I would remain a member of the court as long as I can do the job full steam, she said in a statement that was back in July. I remained fully able to do that. Well, that came to an end on Friday. Ginsburg died surrounded by her family in Washington, D.C. The court said she will be buried in a private ceremony at Arlington National Cemetery, but not before she is. Uh, uh, her body lies in repose at the Supreme Court this week. They announced that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg will lie at the court building on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. Uh, she was 87, died on Friday, battling pancreatic cancer. Well, as soon as the news broke that Ginsburg, who was appointed to the court in 93, had succumbed to pancreatic cancer, Twitter activists began shrieking about burning it all down. That's a quote, by the way. And their analog equivalents showed up outside Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's house in Washington, presumably in an attempt to intimidate him into delaying the confirmation of Ginsburg replacement. 
They left uh, disappointed after learning that he actually wasn't in Washington. Unfortunately for McConnell, however, uh, wherever he was, the protesters had comrades in arms in Kentucky, roughly about 100 of them who gathered outside the majority leader's house on Saturday in that state. Well, the protesters held signs reading Ruth Ruth sent us and chanted, hey, hey, ho, ho. I doubt very seriously Ruth Bader Ginsburg would ever have said, hey, hey, ho, ho. But nonetheless, Mitch McConnell has to go vote him out and ditch Mitch. Well, they have the opportunity to do that every six years as a sitting senator. McConnell announced on Friday night that he would move forward with confirming President Trump's nominee without delay on the grounds that his party had unified control of the White House and the Senate, unlike in 2016 when he blocked President Obama's nominee nine months ahead of the presidential election. Again, that was nine months. Some protesters said that they had come to scream at McConnell's house because they hadn't received a call back from his office. One woman said she was motivated by disgust. I'm disgusted that Senator McConnell would treat this opportunity in a complete different manner than he treated the opportunity when there was a vacancy when Obama was nine or ten months away from election. Well, the ugly practice of surrounding the homes of public figures has become commonplace in this era. Most recently, the Banana Republic tactic was applied to Director of Homeland Security Chad Wolf. Back in July, a mob surrounded his Arlington, Virginia home, used megaphones to make clear that by enacting the Trump administration's policies, which is his job, Wolf had fortified the right to live here quietly. Well, the mob tactics also threaten public figures when they're out in Washington or in their home districts and locations are known to the public. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, Representative Brian Mast of Florida, they were surrounded by a mob outside the Republican National Convention in Washington last month, you might recall. Paul and his wife were forced to wade through a sea of men and women screaming in their faces in order to reach their hotel. They felt that their lives were actually in uh, being threatened. Paul said afterwards that if not for the police officers who formed a barricade around he and his wife, they would have been seriously injured and maybe even killed. And all of this took place before the people who surrounded Paul and his wife thought that the composition of the Supreme Court for a generation hung in the balance. When lawmakers and members of the administration can't show their faces in public, something is deeply wrong. If the last few months are any indication, things will get worse before they get better. The president has announced he will will name his Supreme Court nominee on Friday or Saturday uh, following the funeral of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Justice Ginsburg served 27 years on the U.S. Supreme Court. She passed away, of course, when her longtime friend and fellow opera fan, Justice Antonin Kalia, died in 2016. She lamented that the high court would be a paler place without his ideological opponent, with her ideological opponent and debate partner. Interestingly enough, the two of them on opposite ends of the continuum were deep and close friends. She was considered a lioness of the law on the left. He was considered by her a friend. In recent years, the notorious RBG became a pop culture item, uh, icon rather. She was known uh, for her signature um, fishnet gloves and uh, jabots, her uh, bun. America's favorite uh, octogenarian has inspired T-shirts, Halloween costumes, pillows, and much more. Uh, There's an Oscar-nominated documentary, a major studio motion picture about the justice's early legal career. Saturday Night Live introduced a Ginsburg character with a uh, a, a catchphrase, you just got Gins burned. And the animated TV show Futurama has a character, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's head, that says things like, you Ruth Bader, believe it. I don't get it. In short, the public became invested in her in ways that's, that unmatch other Supreme Court justices. Well, after the news broke that she had been hospitalized for broken ribs and 
November of 2018, supporters took to Twitter, offering to donate their ribs to uh, launch a uh, GoFundMe fundraising site to purchase the giant bubble to keep the fragile uh, justice safe. Long before she became a cultural icon, though, she was a formidable force, a feminist trailblazer who inspired women across the ideological spectrum and a towering individual, despite her diminutive stature, who commanded respect and admiration from all who knew her. On opening night at the opera, the crowd would rise to their feet in raucous applause when she entered the room. Singers would uh, would be giddy at the prospect of getting their photograph taken with her following the performance. Her jurisprudence also left a lot to be desired for conservatives. During a joint interview, Scalia once quipped about his dear friend, what's not to like except her views on the law? Indeed, the bulk of Ginsburg's work, it demonstrated a belief in a Supreme Court with seemingly limitless powers over society, a living, evolving constitution that changes with the times and laws that enlarge or contract their scope as other changes in the world, not just the U.S., require. Well, as we prepare for what may be the most contentious showdown over the Supreme Court vacancy in history, it is uh, right that we take a moment to review the legacy of a giant in the legal profession, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We're going to do that in just a few moments, but I can see that a break is coming up. I should mention, to paraphrase William Shakespeare, we shall not look upon her like again. We'll uh, again talk about her in just a few moments, but I do have a break coming up. Today on the program, we're going to hear a classic interview from Cy Gart. He is the author of The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. So I hope you'll join us for that in the second hour of today's Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. Stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, more importantly, her legacy. To paraphrase William Shakespeare, we shall not look upon her like again. She was born Joan Ruth Bader in Brooklyn, New York in March of 1933. Her mother worked as a, in a garment factory and her father was a, in the fur trade. Her mother was a strong figure in her life, placing a premium on education and teaching the future justice, the importance of controlling her emotions and being independent. Well, after her mother passed away from cancer while she was still in high school, that's Ruth was in high school, she went on to Cornell University, finishing first in her class. It is also where she met her future husband, Marty Ginsburg. They married and started a family before she joined him at Harvard Law School in 1956, the year I was born. Ginsburg was one of nine female students in the class of 500. The dean of the law school allegedly asked these women to justify taking a place that otherwise would have gone to a man. Ginsburg is said to have replied, I am at Harvard to learn about my husband's work so that I might be a more patient and understanding wife, end quote. Well, this self-deprecating remark notwithstanding, she excelled as a student, becoming the first female member of the prestigious Harvard Law Review. While at Harvard, uh, Marty was diagnosed with testicular cancer, and she attended his classes and helped him complete school whilst uh, raising their daughter, Jane, and continuing her own studies. Really remarkable. Upon his graduation, the family moved to New York City, and Ginsburg transferred to Columbia Law School to complete her degree, finishing in a tie for first place in her class. Despite her outstanding academic record, and much like her contemporary Sandra Day O'Connor, Ginsburg struggled to find employment after graduating in 1959. She eventually landed a clerkship with Judge Edmund Palmieri, 
a judge of the U.S. District Court of the Southern District of New York and went on to uh, teach at Rutgers and Columbia Law Schools. At the time, she was one of the few tenure-track female law professors in the country, and she eventually became the first female tenured professor at Columbia Law School, where her daughter, Jane Ginsburg, teaches today. In 1972, she started the American Civil Liberties Union's Women's Rights Project, where she devised a successful litigation strategy for advancing women's rights in law that both President Clinton and Justice Scalia aptly compared to the storied legacy of Thurgood Marshall in advancing the cause of African Americans. She argued six sex discrimination cases before the Supreme Court, winning five, including landmark Reed versus Reed, in which the court held that the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. In order to advance women's equality, her strategy was to attack the laws uh, that discriminated against men. For example, in Frontario versus Richardson in 73, she challenged the statute that provided benefits to the wives of service members on behalf of a married female Air Force officer. During the Supreme Court argument, she declared, quoting abolitionist and suffragette Sarah Grimke, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks, end quote. Well, she would go on to... um, be the considered leader of the liberal wing of the Supreme Court. At the same time, she was known for her affectionate friendship and mutual respect with conservative Justice Antonin Scalia, who died in February of 2016. It's a tremendous example of two people who had broad, very uh, uh, striking differences of opinion and yet were able to maintain a longstanding friendship. One of her better-known majority opinions came in 1996 in United States versus Virginia, in which she wrote, that the male-only admission policy of Virginia Military Institute violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. She also condemned the conduct by some senators during the fierce Senate confirmation fight over Justice Brett Kavanaugh in 2018. She referred to um, uh, the uh, event, the confirmation battle, saying, I wish I could have a wave magic wand and make it go back to the way it was. Sadly, no one can. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a trailblazer who dedicated her life to public service. Her intelligence, hard work, and commitment brought her to the pinnacle of her profession. Following the Kavanaugh confirmation, where liberal activists made a circus of the hearings, she was critical of how contentious the confirmation process had become. And we will witness that once again as the president fully intends to name her successor and the Senate fully intends to move forward with the confirmation process. Her record of advocating the equal uh, equality rather of sexes inspired the movie On the Basis of Sex, in which uh, Felicity Jones portrayed Justice Ginsburg as a law student and lawyer before becoming a judge. The movie looks at her personal life and how she helped her husband struggle uh, with cancer. It actually was a very uh, well-done movie. It also delves into what turned out to be a landmark discrimination case in 72. Well, though a strong advocate for abortion rights as a lawyer and on the federal bench, she questioned the Supreme Court's 1973 decision in Roe versus Wade that legalized abortion across the nation, something that previously was a matter for states to decide. On legal grounds, the justice said uh, the ruling was too sweeping and should have invalidated only the Texas statute being challenged. She said the question should have been one of gender equality that would have evolved rather than a broad right to privacy. Roe seemed to have stopped the momentum, Ginsburg said in 2013 at a University of Chicago School of Law symposium called Roe versus Wade at 40. It mattered that Roe went as far as it did, she said, referring to the annual March for Life in the nation's capital. 
Uh, Roll became a symbol for the Right to Life movement. They have an annual parade now every year on the day in January when it was decided. The abortion cases now are all about restrictions on abortion and not about the rights of women. In December of 92, again quoting from her, before joining the high court, she said in a lecture at uh, New York University, suppose the Supreme Court had stopped there, rightly declaring unconstitutional the most extreme band of brand rather of law in the nation. It had not gone uh, on as the court did in Roe to fashion a regimen uh, blanketing the subject, a set of rules that displaced virtually every state law then in force. Uh, would there have been the 20-year controversy that we have witnessed? So uh, at least there's some ground that upon which some on both sides of the issue might have agreed. The outcome, of course, there would be broad disagreement, um, but uh, she at least held that Roe versus Wade was a flawed decision and didn't reach ultimately the goal that she thought the pro-abortion movement thought should have been the case, but provided a rallying cry for the pro-life movement moving forward. Well, President Trump said Republicans have an obligation, that's his uh, choice of word, to fill the vacancy on the Supreme Court left by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg without delay. The president's uh, tweet came after Ginsburg passed away on Friday from complications surrounding um, metastatic cancer of the pancreas. Uh, The president's statement comes after Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, just hours after Ginsburg passing, vowed that a Trump nominee to the Supreme Court will receive a vote on the floor of the United States Senate. In fact, we'll uh, take a look a bit later in the program, if I can find uh, my notes, on what uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had to say previously when this back and forth happened under the uh, previous administration. In fact, let me, uh, I I think I have time to do that now. Um, Her death was announced on Friday, but she said during the time of the Obama administration uh, in 2016, when a lame duck President Obama tabbed Merrick Garland to replace the late conservative Justice Antonin Kalia. Democratic leaders had no problem with that move, and neither did Ginsburg. Uh, there's nothing in the Constitution, she said at the time, that says the president stops being the president in his last year. This was a 2016 New York Times interview in which she called the uh, call Garland to receive information vote in the Senate. As for whether the Senate should take up a vote on Garland, Ginsburg said at the time, that's their job. Now, she is also quoted as saying prior to her death, and this is unconfirmed, that she hoped that she would live long enough to deprive President Trump the opportunity to replace her with what would invariably be a conservative on the uh, the bench. Now, it's important to point out that the Republicans at that time said that no, the president should not. And this was during a divided Senate that the president should not have the opportunity so close. This is 19 months before the election. So close to the election, have the opportunity to replace the, uh, uh, the next uh, the vacancy set in the Supreme Court. Well, that tune has changed as well among Republicans. We'll try to explain why in the course of uh, the program and throughout the week. So I hope you'll stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back momentarily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, second hour, in fact, Cy Gart will be our classic interview, The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. Well, Senate GOP Conference Chairman John Barrasso called on the president and his Senate colleagues on Sunday to move forward on a nominee to replace the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, warning that whatever they do, referring to the Democrats, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and his Democratic caucus will blow up the Senate if they take power in 2021. Well, Barrasso out of Wyoming noted that 
when Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell balked at scheduling a hearing for President Obama's 2016 SCOTUS nominee, D.C. Circuit Judge Merrick Garland. It was on account of the Biden rule. In 92, the current Democratic presidential nominee was a U.S. senator from uh, Delaware who took to the floor and made a speech calling on the legislative body not to hold any potential hearings for nominees offered by then-President George Herbert Walker Bush. So apparently what went around came around at that time. Well, the president, not surprisingly, took a swipe at Senator Murkowski after she opposed the Senate taking up the SCOTUS confirmation. We'll hear a lot of that in the days to come. Mark Levin ripped the Democrats in the Supreme Court clash, saying they hate the Constitution. And um, Alexander says that McConnell is doing what Democrats would do if the shoe were on the other foot with the SCOTUS nomination. Senator Graham says Dems telling me how how to handle the SCOTUS pick is like arsonists advising the fire department. Meanwhile, the uh, president called the two California deputies injured in the ambush shooting in California, wishing them a speedy recovery. The two deputies injured during an ambush uh, received a call uh, from the president last week as they were recovering in the hospital. The deputies, a 31-year-old mother and a 24-year-old man, were in uh, their marked patrol car outside the metro uh, station in Compton on the 12th of September when police said a suspected uh, perpetrator approached the passenger side window, shot them multiple times and ran from the scene around 7 p.m. Photos captured the moment that the female deputy, who is a mother of six-year-old boy, received a call from the president. She was in critical but stable condition after being shot in the jaw and arms. Due to her injuries, she could only write down her response, which was relayed to the president by the LASD sergeant who sat next to the deputy and her husband in ICU. Both of the deputies and their families were very appreciative of that call. Well, the reward in the L.A. County ambush shooting hits $675,000 as the manhunt continues. And L.A. police are searching for potential witnesses caught on video near the scene of the deputy ambush. The Los Angeles area man is, uh, that was falsely accused in the deputy shootings has spoken out. And one deputy shot in Compton's uh, attack has been released from the hospital. Well, a comedy show, the name of which was intended to be quite uh, controversial, one uh, the um, uh, made history at the Grammys, first series to sweep an all-major comedy awards. The comedy about a successful businessman and his family who go bankrupt and move to a small town to start over, uh, starring father and son team Eugene and Daniel Levy, took home prizes for best comedy writing, directing, and acting, earning the show a total of seven awards on Sunday. Not that anyone actually watched. After snagging the awards, the cast of the show opened up about the historic win, saying it's absolutely incredible. Anthony Anderson highlighted Black Lives Matter in his uh, 2020 Emmy speech. Mark Ruffalo, not surprisingly, urged Americans to vote for compassion and kindness in the Emmy speech about the nation's diversity. And David Letterman rewore his tuxedo and recycled his jokes from the 1986 Emmys host uh, the gig that he had for the 2020 show. Well, uh, Pelosi seemed a bit confused during her interview on the SCOTUS fight, and Kim Classett released a new campaign video after her viral hit. She's an African-American woman running for office. Chicago postal workers are threatening to stop delivering the mail after multiple employees have been shot on the job. And a woman suspected of sending rice into the White House has been arrested near the Canadian border. A Nebraska bar owner has been charged with shooting and killing the protester and has taken his own life.
A U.S. judge has blocked the Commerce Department's order to remove WeChat from the app stores. And oil prices have fallen as Libya begins its output, or rather restarts. Uh, Gulf rigs halted production due to a series of storms. United Airlines and unions are calling for a six-month extension of federal aid and a restart of the stimulus negotiations. Let's see in other news Impeachment is being floated as a stall tactic to prevent the president from appointing a new Supreme Court justice. Hugh Hewitt points out that if Democrats deploy outrageous delaying tactics, such as conducting a sham impeachment, Speaker Nancy Pelosi replied simply, we have our options. When asked about the possibility by ABC George Stephanopoulos on Sunday, the Republican Senate majority should simply dispense with hearings and hold a vote. The clip of Pelosi answering the question, which includes a bizarre moment where she appears to reboot, as I made reference to it in just a moment ago, or rather just a moment ago. Some are threatening violence if Trump picks a Supreme Court nominee, not that violence wouldn't be the response if uh, Trump simply exhaled. Already leftists in the media are threatening riots if the Senate confirms someone to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And to Mitch McConnell, we need to tell him he is playing with fire, AOC says. Allie Beth Stuckley says this in a tweet. It is the GOP um, uh, rioting, burning down cities and harassing civilians until they uh, raise their first uh, and raise their fist rather and chant according to their liking. Are they the ones threatening to stop at nothing if the Senate confirms a SCOTUS nominee? Well, the answer, of course, would be no. That would be on the left. Well, it started soon after Ginsburg's death. Uh, Democrats claim that they will pack the court and increase judges if they get power. And an MSNBC anchor is in agreement. Ginsburg uh, chastised Democrats for threatening this before. Apparently that doesn't matter any longer. The Wall Street Journal editorial board looks at the one-sided attacks on justices the Democrats deploy and how they've uh, destroyed the um, the process. One thing that um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg lamented, Eric Erickson points out the problems with this threat is that they were threatening to do it before the situation. Well, Trump says he will nominate a female judge and she will be announced this week, most likely Friday or Saturday. Um, Biden refuses to give his list of potential nominees, saying he doesn't want to politicize the process, which is sort of funny if you think about it. Anyway, the media has jumped on the uh, uh, faith of Amy Coney Barrett, one of the women on that list, that short list of potential Supreme Court nominees. The Washington Post's Ron Charles reported Amy Coney Barrett, the judge at the top of Trump's list who place Ruth Bader Ginsburg has said she would always remember that a legal career is but a means to an end and that end is building the kingdom of God. Apparently takes her faith seriously. Tim Carney says she's right and if you have a problem with this well you're probably a member of the mainstream media. Dan McLaughlin says every Christian every Jew every Muslim believes this that's a lot uh, of Americans. The New York Times, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, they write, is regarded, at least for now, as the leading contender to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. If nominated and confirmed, she would be viewed as a home run by conservative Christians and anti-abortion activists, pro-life activists. Patricia Heaton says, friends, be prepared for a social media to be filled with an onslaught of arrogant pronouncements based on breathtaking ignorance of religion in general and Christianity more specifically, and Catholicism in particular by people who wouldn't recognize God if he bit them on the bum, she said. That's a quote, by the way. Well, Black Lives Matter protesters are continuing to harass diners again in the safe 
to be a thug city of D.C. And NFL star has created a pro-life documentary. We'll be talking about that in the days ahead. Benjamin Watson explained how his faith led him down this road in the film, which, again, we'll be talking about at some point in the not-too-distant future. Well, support the president's Supreme Court nominee as if your freedom depends on it, because it does. Issues and insights makes the case. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi discussed the possibility of impeaching the president to stop a SCOTUS nomination. This is war. Democrat activists vow scorched earth battle to block the Supreme Court pick. Should there be one, and there will be. Democrats have also threatened to pack the court. RBG circa 2016. Senate should do their jobs, replace Scalia before the election. Well, now it's her being replaced. One would assume that would still stand. Uh, circa 2020, die, her dying wish, we're being told, um, RBG, was to not be replaced until January. Well, she wanted to live until January is more specifically what she said, so that the necessity of her being replaced would not be the case. But uh, as a judge and not a politician, these guys, these women and men don't have the opportunity to decide what happens next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you in our second hour, we're going to share a classic interview with Cy Gard. He's the author of The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. Right now, we're winding our way through some of the headlines over the last several days. Well, CNN uh, was pretty quiet as um, candidate Biden claimed that nobody would have died from the virus if Trump had done his job. Of course, they didn't flinch either when, what was it, 20, 20 million or 200 million, uh, the candidate, the Democrat candidate announced how many Americans had died of COVID-19. Well, Democrat Tulsi Gabbard says voter fraud is a serious threat and she's seeking to outlaw ballot harvesting. And that's when ballots are collected, presumably just pre- simply transporting them to the uh, place, uh, the balloting place, uh, leaving them vulnerable to manipulation. And Pelosi stonewalled a bill that would crack down on the Chinese Communist Confucius Institute. Uh, The Emmy Awards were pretty heavy on anti-Trump politics. I know, like you, I'm shocked. Uh, This isn't a MAGA rally, one of the statements being heard there, but of course, very few people actually heard it because few people were watching. Well, the president has vowed enough vaccine doses for every American by April, and epidemiologists are certain whether the long-feared autumn second wave will materialize. So I'm not sure that's going to actually happen or not. The judge has halted the Trump administration's order banning WeChat from Apple and Google app stores, saying there are serious questions going to the merits of the First Amendment claim. And the U.S. has reimposed U.N. sanctions on Iran. Secret documents now show how North Korea launders money through U.S. banks. And tropical storm Beta is uh, nearing the Texas coast with flood rain, uh, storm surge, gusty winds. A massive, um, well, expletive Cuomo and de Blasio mural has been painted on a Brooklyn street. I won't repeat it because, well, I don't speak that kind of foul language, nor does the FCC approve. Nonetheless, the mural can be seen. Well, from just about anywhere. Well, on this day in history, 1893, one of America's first horseless carriages is taken for a short test drive in Springfield, Massachusetts, by Frank Duryea. 
who had designed the vehicle with his brother Charles. 1970, NFL Monday Night Football makes his debut on ABC as the Cleveland Browns defeat New York Jets 31-21. 1981, the Senate unanimously confirms the nomination of Sandra Day O'Connor to become the first female justice on the Supreme Court. On this day in history, 1985, in North Korea and South Korea, family members separated for decades are allowed to visit each other as both countries open their borders in an unprecedented family reunion program. In 1996, President Bill Clinton signs the Defense of Marriage Act, denying federal recognition of same-sex marriages a day after saying the law should not be used as an excuse for discrimination, violence, or intimidation against gays and lesbians. And although never formally repealed, the Defense of Marriage Act would be effectively overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court decision in 2013, decisions, I should say, and 2015. And on this day in history, 2014, thousands of demonstrators fill the streets of Manhattan and cities around the world to urge policymakers to take action on climate change. Well, the Trump administration officially identified Portland, Seattle, and New York as permitting ongoing violence and failing to a counteract crime, the U.S. Department of Justice on Monday announced it suggested that uh, could affect federal funding for the three large Democrat-run cities without specifying how. We cannot allow federal tax dollars to be wasted when the safety of the citizenry hangs in the balance. That's a quote from Attorney General William Barr in a statement. Well, the Justice Department specifically called out five actions that the Portland City Council Mayor Tim Wheeler and other city officials have taken or failed to take the Trump administration in the Trump administration's view. Wheeler's office didn't uh, respond uh, to a request for comment, but the uh, Trump administration says Portland marked 100 consecutive nights of protests marred by vandalism, chaos and even killing. Those bent on violence regularly started fires through projectiles at law enforcement officers and destroyed property. Numerous law enforcement officers, among others, suffered injury. Shootings increased by more than 140 cent, uh, percent rather, in June and July compared to the same period last year. And in the midst of this violence, the Portland City Council cut $15 million from the police bureau, eliminating 84 positions. Crucially, the cuts included the gun violence reduction team, which investigates shootings in several positions from the police, uh, Portland police uh, team that responds to emergency incidents. In August, Portland Mayor Wheeler sent a letter to the president expressly rejecting the administration's offer of federal law enforcement to stop the violent protests. Well, the city council did pull $15 million from its planned Portland Police Bureau budget and disband the gun violence uh, re uh, reduction, transition, or rather transit police and school resource units. Hundreds of protesters have been arrested for alleged property destruction, disorderly conduct, and other crimes. The Multnomah County District Attorney, though, has said his office won't prosecute allegations that don't involve deliberate property damage. I want him to define deliberate in these cases. Theft or force against another person or threats of force stemming from the protests. Well, at least six men across Oregon have been accused of intentionally setting blazes during a disastrous wildfire season. It's burned more than a million acres here in Oregon, killed at least nine people and annihilated homes, entire towns and beloved natural areas. Well, none of them have ties to left or right wing groups or appear to have been motivated by politics, according to police and court records received by the Oregonian and other local sources. Only one of the accused fire starters, a Southern Oregon man with a history of methamphetamine use, is accused of damaging more than a dozen homes and endangering people's lives. Prosecutors say another man in Lane County caused hundreds of acres to burn near a sleepy timber town. 
The remaining four, whose criminal records point to drug addiction, homelessness, and mental illness, are suspected in much smaller fires that were quickly put out, according to authorities and court documents. Well, Republican lawmakers called on the World Health Organization's leaders to resign, saying the coronavirus pandemic likely could have been prevented if the Chinese government acted more transparently and the World Health Organization, or WHO, wasn't complicit in the spread and normalization of their propaganda during the outbreak's early days. An audit from the House Foreign Affairs Committee reportedly says. Well, the 96-page document authored by Republicans in the committee, which the New York Times, uh, New York Post rather, says it exclusively obtained on Monday before it pl- its plan released, also reportedly calls for the resignation of WHO director Tedros Adhanma, Adhanom uh, over his detrimental impact on the COVID-19 response. It is beyond doubt that the Chinese Communist Party actively engaged in a cover-up designed to obfuscate data hide relevant public health information, and suppress doctors and journalists who attempted to warn the world, it said, according to the Post. Well, research shows that the uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party could have reduced the number of cases in China by up to 95% had it fulfilled its obligation under the international law and responded to the outbreak in a manner consistent with best practices. It added, while also saying it is highly likely the ongoing pandemic could have been prevented Report says that on the 1st of January, Chinese officials ordered that the Wuhan wet market, where the virus is believed to have come from, be closed and sanitized, destroying forensic evidence that may have provided insight into the origins of the outbreak. Well, we are what many are referring to as America's crossroads. We have regrettably arrived at America's constitutional crossroads, 230 uh, years ago, our Constitution was signed. In fact, last week was Constitution Day. By the, It was signed by the framers, and the United States began its journey of individual freedom, Republican government, free enterprise, respect for spiritual norms. The founders had achieved agreement that the new Constitution would be the bedrock for future limited government across all states and all peoples. And while the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a clear Uh, Battle, uh, there are battle lines, ideological and perhaps, uh, God forbid, physical, are being drawn at the crossroads between those who cherish our longstanding constitutional government and those who would move the United States to a socialist or even Marxist regime. The friction is enormous and the rhetoric is, well, sizzling. With the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ginsburg, it appears that the appointment and confirmation of the next Supreme Court justice, a single human being, will offer an epic turning point. If a proven conservative jurist is confirmed, the Supreme Court will have a solid constitutional majority. One can expect that the laws and rulings that come before it would be interpreted against the actual words of the Constitution and the founders' intent of governance. If a more liberal jurist is confirmed, the country can expect a majority of justices who desire to interpret the Constitution in terms of today's societal meanderings and thus The court will surely approve many laws and directives that will rapidly move the nation to a socialist uh, regime and beyond. We'll talk more about that in the second hour of today's program. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, we'll hear from Cy Gart, a classic interview on his book, The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. And yes, it happens. Um, we were talking before the uh, top of the hour 
about the fact that the United States is at something of a crossroads. With the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ginsburg, it's clear that battle lines have uh, been drawn. They're ideological and perhaps, God forbid, even physical battle lines. They're being drawn at the crossroads between those who cherish our long-standing constitutional government and those who want to move the United States to a socialist or even a Marxist regime. The friction is palpable, it's enormous, and the rhetoric is, to put it mildly, sizzling. Well, standing at the center of this epic moment is President Donald Trump. He's going to decide who and when to nominate, we've learned, Friday or Saturday, and then turn that name over to the U.S. Senate for confirmation or rejection. But it is Trump who has become the linchpin of the future of uh, the republic with regard to this process. And already the saber-rattling has begun. It's loud with threats of violence and carnage should he dare to nominate a new justice this close to an election. From what we've seen over the last six months, these are likely not idle threats. If Trump moves on the nomination and he's vowed to do just that, we're told those threats could lead to civil unrest, strife, and even again, God forbid, armed conflict. Armed conflict means we could face another civil war on America's homeland. I don't want to overstate the case, but I think it's uh, not overstating the case to suggest that these are not simply idle words, that that's sort of the season that we find ourselves in. Now, many will contend that the president should acquiesce on behalf of more peaceful and so-called stable outcomes. Let's just let the next Supreme Court justice be nominated by the next president, confirmed by the next Senate. Uh, many would argue if Trump just acquiesces, much blood and treasure will be spared, they say. Um, in all this, they, uh, they hope that, uh, as the polls uh, seem to indicate, that he can secure either the presidency, the Republicans can secure the Senate, or both. Uh, they'll use any tactics, legal or illegal, to ensure that at least one of three outcomes is the case. With the presidency or the Senate or both secured, they'll never allow a conservative jurist to become a Supreme Court justice uh, in the future, say those uh, opponents of the president's uh, decision. Thus, socialism will accelerate its march across the land just as is desired by some. Well, the decision lies uh, before the president. Nominate now, face potential civil strife, or worse, surrender and don't nominate during this term. Allow the future of the country to be tossed to the election and all uh, its uh, clear and looming frailties imposed. So what will he do? As I mentioned earlier, he's already announced that he fully intends to nominate Friday or Saturday a uh, replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Mitch McConnell has already said there will be a vote in the Senate. And uh, to put it in a vernacular that I think is appropriate for the occasion, my guess is all hell will break loose. We think we've seen it bad now. My guess is it's going to get worse. This is just a foretaste of what happens um, in the nominating process. Then in November, when there's an election, we know at least one state that is allowing ballots to be counted as and cast uh, as legitimate at least three days after the election. So I hope you are girding your loins and are prepared for the possibility of serious strife uh, in our country. Well, President Trump says that uh, he will likely make that announcement, as I mentioned, uh, and has mentioned five likely candidates. Now, we know who the president intends to nominate for the U.S. Supreme Court because he's made that list available to us. He has said uh, that uh, the nominee will be a woman. Um, and there are women on his list. Uh, there have been uh, five names now released as the potential uh, to assume that, um, that position. Among them, and I'm looking for my list here, the president's short list is said to include Judge Amy Coney Barrett from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the second, rather, Seventh Circuit, Judge Barbara 
Lagoa of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, Judge Allison Jones Rushing of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 4th Circuit, among others. The president touted the list of potential picks, calling them excellent and all very smart. It's uh, important to point out that Barrett is 48, Lagoa is 52, Rushing is 38. And it's unclear the age of the president's other potential nominees, but we're looking at the, the possibility of a Supreme Court justice, if confirmed, who would serve for many, many decades. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 27 years on the bench. You confirm a 38-year-old, a 42-year-old, and this could be 30-plus years on the bench. Now, James and I had a conversation during the breaks of the program suggesting that uh, there may be a call for term limits for Supreme Court justices. Um, that's a process that I would imagine whoever enjoins in that process would want to skew in their own favor, but it is something to consider as a possibility uh, if some of these younger jurists are seated on the Supreme Court. Well, seven things to know about the um, the process. Uh, Trump is poised to name his nominee this week. McConnell pledges uh, a Senate vote. Uh, it's clear that he intends for the Senate to give the president's uh, nominee a vote. In 26, he didn't allow a vote for then-President Barack Obama Supreme Court nominee Merrick Garland, in a statement issued Friday night, he explained why he does not see 2020 as um, analogous to 2016. I think this is of some interest, given the fact that the Democrats are howling that the Republicans are hypocrites in this uh, regard. He writes, in the last midterm election before Justice Antonin Scalia's death in 2016, Americans elected a Republican Senate majority because we pledged to check and balance the last days of a lame duck president's second term. We kept our promise. Since the 80s, no Senate has confirmed an opposite party president Supreme Court nominee uh, in a presidential election year. By contrast, Americans re-elect our, re-elected rather, our majority in 2016 and expanded it in 2018 because we pledged to work with President Trump and support his agenda, particularly his outstanding appointments to the federal judiciary. Once again, we will keep that promise. President Trump's nominee will receive a vote on the floor of the United States Senate. End quote, quote. Former President Clinton, who nominated Ginsburg to the court, criticized McConnell, as have so many others. Uh, the nominee is expected to be a woman. As I mentioned, liberals are threatening to increase the number of Supreme Court justices moving forward should they have the reins of power in the White House, the House and the Senate. Two GOP senators have already indicated that they are against confirming a nominee before the election. Senators Lisa Mikowski of uh, Alaska and Senator Susan Collins. Ted Cruz is calling for a quick confirmation and Nancy Pelosi won't rule out impeaching the president. Uh, in order to end uh, Secretary Powell, uh, rather Barr, in order to slow the confirmation process. So using another tactic to prevent that from happening is not beyond House members to try to prevent this uh, from happening. Well, the first presidential debate, it's coming up September 29th. That's a, a Tuesday in Cleveland. President on, uh, Trump said on Monday that he assumes Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden is going to do great during the first presidential debate scheduled for next week, then went on to slam the former vice president. I've done more in 47 months than he's done in 47 years, and that's absolutely true, Trump said in an exclusive interview. Uh, the debate is scheduled to take place on Tuesday, September 29th in Cleveland. As I said, President Trump is reportedly taking a new approach to the upcoming debates by preparing which is something he didn't do in 2016. The incumbent is studying Biden's idiosyncrasies, uh, hoping to trip up the former vice president and avoid 
any missteps uh, from four years ago, Politico reported earlier this month. In 2016, Trump refused to conduct a mock debate. He didn't allow anyone to play former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and he would uh, not simulate the question and answer dynamic between moderator and candidates. Host uh, Steve Ducey asked Trump on Monday, as you look at uh, combating uh, Joe Biden, what are you thinking? And the president said, I think he's a professional, Trump said in response. I don't know if he's uh, all there, but I think he's a professional. Well, all of Joe Biden will be there uh, when the debate takes place, the first on September 29th, Tuesday of uh, next week. Now, it's it's fascinating to me that we're this far into the election season. Many uh, ballots have already been cast and, uh, and uh, maybe not counted, uh, but this is very late in the season to have a very – a limited number of ballots, or excuse me, a very limited number of debates that are going to take place between the two major presidential candidates. Well, we are out of time. Up next, we're going to hear a classic interview with Cy Gart. He's the author of The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. I always love these tremendous stories because it gives us hope and reminds us that God is at work in ways and in the hearts of people that we would never expect. Remember Saul of Tarsus? Well, that's coming up in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Here's the question. How does one go from an avowed atheist to a person of faith? Well, in his new release, The Works of His Hands, biochemist and author Cy Gard, he takes readers on a personal journey from being raised in a militant atheist family to that of a fully committed follower of Jesus, a Christian. And while he had no intention to believe in God, as a student and early in his career, the science that he loved led him to question his worldview. In fact, he says, and I'm quoting, my scientific knowledge had made me doubt my atheistic upbringing and I was ready and waiting, but not yet a believer. Then one day while I was driving on the Pennsylvania turnpike, the Holy Spirit took hold of me. I pulled over, wept, and thanked the Lord for his mercy. Well, the book is titled The Work of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. And my guest, Dr. Cy Garth, is a biochemist and has been a professor at New York University, University of Pittsburgh, and Rutgers University. He has authored over 200 scientific publications and four previous books and has served as division director at the National Institutes of Health. He is also editor-in-chief of God and Nature Magazine and vice president of the Washington, D.C. chapter of the American Scientific Affiliation. He is a lay leader at the United Methodist Church, and he joins us today to talk about his book, The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, you um, uh, write in your book that um, your own salvation came through the understanding that the natural world and its description by science is a strong witness to God's existence and majesty. Can you explain a little of what you mean by that, given the fact that you were a scientist for much longer um, before you came to recognize God's hand uh, at work, as the, the title of your book suggests? Yes. Well, I, I was I actually still am an, a scientist. I've been a scientist uh, my whole adult life. But I was also an atheist, and as you mentioned in your introduction, I was brought up in a very militant atheist family uh, and taught that not only should we not believe in God, but that the idea of God is impossible, and religion, in particular Christianity, are evil and, you know, should be avoided. So 
that was my original my original upbringing and it was a long journey to get from there to where i am today uh and as as also was in the introduction uh the first part of that journey involved the science i was learning which was uh going against the strong materialist views of how the world is that i had been taught as as a youth and uh was opening up a lot of questions in my mind about that kind of atheist dogma that I was learning. And when I began probing into those questions, I found myself rejecting that kind of strong atheism and ended up more or less as an agnostic. I really wasn't sure what to believe. You describe your journey as long and winding and say that you write the, you wrote the book more as a guide to the perplexed for people of faith or uh, open-minded atheists who wish to embrace the modern world of science and technology and enjoy the intellectual and emotional beauty of science without giving up any part of their equally beautiful and soul-enriching faith in God. Talk a bit about who you want to reach and, and your approach in sharing not only your journey, but uh, what you learned along the way. Yeah, I I had a very specific audience in mind when I wrote this book, and that is uh, that audience would be anyone who, especially Christians, who are uh, wondering about their faith and who have been told by the media and by the very strident voices of new atheism that you have to choose between God and science. You have to choose between your faith. You may have been brought up in a in a in a very devout Christian household, and then you go to college and you learn uh, about biology and physics and evolution, and you 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 know get the idea either from professors or from pastors or both that you can't have both. You have to choose one or the other because science and Christianity are in conflict. And the whole goal of of my work, and I'm not alone. There are many of us mm-hmm. trying. Do the same thing is to show that that is a myth, that the conflict between science and Christian faith is is not real. It's uh, it's made up, and it is it's easily destroyed as soon as you actually know enough about science and enough about the truth of Christianity. You divide the book into two parts. In the in the first part, you focus a lot on, on on your experience, your quest for knowledge that brought you to question your materialist assumptions and some of the larger questions that I think are are familiar to many of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I start out talking about uh, a little bit about physics. I, I will say there's a lot of science at the beginning of the book, but it's not, it's, it's very accessible mm-hmm. to non-scientists. So uh, don't, readers should not be worried about that. Uh, but I do talk about some of the very strange results of modern physics, which, are, you know, are not the kinds of things we learn in high school about inclined planes and, and pulleys and things, but very complex stuff about atoms and, and electrons and particles. And when you get into that level, it turns out that physics is not terribly rational. There are all kinds of seemingly magical things that go on in when you're talking about how you know, electrons can be both particles and waves at the same time and all kinds of other things that just don't make a lot of sense in our minds, but they're true. And when I learned about that, and that's, as I said, that's the first chapter there. uh, When I learned about that, I started wondering about the whole claim that Christianity uh, or religion in general must be false because it's irrational. 
And then I realized, well, wait a minute, uh, so is science. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to our minds. It makes sense mathematically, but that's about it. So uh, that kind of destroyed my first argument against the idea of religion. And after that, I talk about what I was learning in biology and biochemistry, which is my own field. And the incredible beauty and complexity of, of even simple cells is just staggering especially when you learn the details. And I just found it hard to just accept the idea that this was all accidental. This is all just, you know, from natural uh, events that occurred by chance. And I started thinking, well, I don't know, there must be something else going on. I didn't know what it was. I still didn't believe in God. I was, I've also always been fascinated by human beings, by the, the incredible, uh, power of the human brain, the creativity, imagination, art, music, humor, uh, science itself, all of this is, is brand new in the universe, and it only you only find it in human beings. And I, I was asking myself, what, what, what is it? You know, what, what caused that? How do human beings get to be the way they are? And I didn't have a good answer for that. Mm -hmm. So these, these are some of the questions that were, you know, poking holes in my original uh, uh, wall of belief in, in strong atheism, and I was rapidly losing that. And, um, and then I began realizing that science has a lot of limits. There's a lot of things that science does not answer. And all scientists know this. The whole concept of scientism, which is the philosophical view that all questions can be answered by science, is not something that most scientists share because scientists know from their own experience that there's a whole range of questions, even questions about the natural world, that science is, is not able to answer. So at that point, uh, I, I guess you could say that, that that is the first part of the book and the first part of my journey. And what it left me with was a sense that uh, I really didn't know what was going on, and uh, I was no longer hostile to the idea of God, the idea of religion. I still had a long way to go, and the way I developed that part of my story was uh, I was I became open to people I knew who were Christians. Uh, one of them brought me to a church for the first time in my life. I was in my late 40s when that happened. And I was expecting a horrible thing. You know, I, I didn't know what to expect in a church. I'd heard all these horrible stories about, <laughs> you know, fire and damnation and brimstone and all kinds of things. And I, I was, I walked in, I was absolutely terrified. I don't think I've ever been that frightened, you know, walking into a church. <laughs> and, and the pastor started speaking about love. And that was it. And, I couldn't believe it. And, you know, people shook my hand. Uh, they wished me peace. And it was very pleasant. And I was very surprised and realized, well, I guess I really have been lied to. Uh, you know, it was, it was not a horrible experience at all. It was actually quite pleasant. And I will say that since I became a Christian, I've been in many churches, many denominations, and I have never had anything other than a wonderful experience. So, um, 
you know, I, I wasn't just lucky, I think, <laughs> that any any church you can walk into, especially if you're a diehard atheist, you're going to be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a sure. quick break. Again, we're talking with Dr. Cy Gard. His book is titled The Works of His Hands. We'll take a break and be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. I'm continuing my conversation with my guest, uh, Dr. Cy Garth. He is the author of The Works of His Hands. And in the book, he is, I should mention, a biochemist, and he shares what he learned and is still learning during his uh, career as a scientist in search of purpose and meaning. He discovered Christianity, to uh, paraphrase C.S. Lewis, as the light by which everything else may be seen. His insights offered in narrative and creative storytelling provide a roadmap reconciling science and faith, both for spiritual seekers and uh, peeking over the, uh, the fence of the yard of agnosticism and those who are sitting on the pews looking outward. Uh, just before the break, we were talking about the first half of the book. In the second um, half of the book, you really um, uh, cover many of the issues and questions that are presented against God in the academic and scientific uh, settings and explain the foundations that um, are false on which they rest. Can you talk a bit about the second half of the book and how it fits with uh, your journey and others who might be seeking? Sure. Um, well, what happened was I, I, I wasn't expecting to become a Christian at all, uh, even after I had kind of rejected my materialism and my, uh, uh, you know, my original atheism. I, I was kind of floating around looking at various things, you know, new age stuff and spirituality in general, but uh, what happened was, and this is the last, this is covered in the last chapter of the first part, uh, I, first of all, I had a couple of dreams uh, in which Jesus Christ appeared to me, and I didn't know it was Jesus, it was a man, but those dreams were very powerful, and uh, they led me to wonder if perhaps uh, that was the answer, (laughs) you know, Christianity. Um, I decided to read the Gospels, and when I did that, I had never, of course, cracked the Bible before, but at this point, I went straight to Matthew, and I read it, and it it seemed convincing to me. I mean, I didn't necessarily believe it, but it certainly didn't seem like a fairy story. It didn't seem like anyone had made that up. And then I read the Acts of the Apostles, and that read to me like actual history. It didn't, again, it didn't sound like this was some kind of a conspiracy to, you know, to fool the masses into <laughs> believing in, in, in religion. It, it, it sounded very real. And the story of Paul, of course, was, was very moving to me. Um, and so I was about, I was really thinking about this as a possibility, but I couldn't quite get over that threshold. I, I, my training had been too intense and too long. And uh, I was actually dragged over the threshold, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, while I was driving one day uh, by the Holy Spirit, who, who came to me, and uh, it's described in detail in the book, but mm-hmm. basically I found myself preaching a sermon and to myself, and that sermon did not come from me. <laughs> I didn't even know some of the concepts that were in it, but when I was done, it was, I was, it was clear to me that that Christ is real, the Holy Spirit is real, and I became a Christian right there at that time. 
But now I'll get to your question because that caused a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I was going to believe in Jesus Christ as a as a fully committed scientist, and and I, I didn't know any Christians, I I certainly didn't know any Christians in science, and I didn't know what to do, and I had a lot of questions I had to deal with, like. You know, what about the Bible? Is the Bible true? Doesn't the Bible have contradictions? And doesn't the Bible say things that are not scientific? I had to understand the, you know, what about evil? What about all of these questions that, you know, I had always brought up myself when arguing with people who were religious and were trying to convert me. And, you know, I I had to answer those questions uh, as well to myself. And I did, and I found it surprisingly easy to do. And when I thought about it, I mean, one of the things that people often bring up is, why doesn't God give me a sign? And sometimes when I tell people about the dreams and the experience driving that I had, they say, well, nothing like that has ever happened to me. Why doesn't God come to me and give me a sign? And the answer to that is that I remember once I had come to Christ, that God had given me many signs in the past, all kinds of things uh, that had been pointing to belief in him. And I had simply ignored them. And in one case, I actually was felt emotionally moved by something that I saw and that seemed very much in tune with the idea of, of God. But I just rejected it and I just chalked it down to, you know, some emotional uh, delusion or something that was affecting me. And I rejected that. I wasn't listening. I wasn't open. And it wasn't until, you know, my study of science opened me up that I was able to hear these calls to Jesus. And and once I could hear them, I eventually was able to respond. So that was one question that I was able to deal with. In terms of the Bible, luckily, I I came across many Christians uh, who are scientists uh, I read a book called The Language of God by Dr. Francis Collins, who's now the uh, director of the NIH, uh, a famous geneticist, and who is an evangelical Christian, and who actually I've come to know, and, and he's an amazing man. And his book, if nothing else, it showed me that I was not the only one. <laughs> I thought I was the only scientist who would ever believe in God. And then I, I discovered a whole universe of people, uh, Mm -hmm. both living and in the past, I found out that almost all the scientists in history were Christian up until the last few decades, actually. That includes Pasteur, my heroes, uh, you know, Alexander Fleming, and uh, obviously uh, the well-known ones like uh, Copernicus and and, uh, Maxwell and Faraday and Robert Boyle. These are all giants of of early Mm -hmm. science, and they were all not just Christians, they were devout Christians, and they wrote about Christianity. So all of this had been hidden from me, and I, when I learned it, I, 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 also, I also found out there were many Nobel Prize winners who were Christians, and I actually have met one of them, at least. I may have met two, I don't remember, but one I've met. And um, the whole idea that, that no scientist can be a Christian, which is what I thought. I honestly thought that. I thought it was too contradictory. It's just nonsense, and uh, it's 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 what I call a big lie. It, it it's well believed by many many people, especially younger people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's taught on some university campuses. Uh, unfortunately, I believe there are some professors. I've known a couple who 
will stress that. If they're teaching biology and evolution, they'll say, well, you know, obviously this is not the Bible. You can't believe in, uh, in God if you're going to accept modern biology. And that's simply a false statement. It's completely untrue. I just love the fact that you're telling your story. And each uh, chapter, I should mention in the book, includes discussion questions. Uh, you have a comprehensive appendix where readers can find more extensive information. It's written for anybody who's ever been told that the realities of science call for the rejection of God, as you've just described. And it really is uh, an approachable book, as you mentioned uh, at the start of our conversation, that I would highly recommend. I wish we had more time, but we are out of time. I want to thank you for the book and for taking your valuable time to talk with us here today. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Really appreciate it. Again, the book is titled The Works of His Hands. Dr. Seigart is the author and is currently available in bookstores. In fact, who's the... um, the publisher here. Craigle is the, the publisher. A great read, and you should find some encouragement, those of you who have uh, family members and friends who seem like they're just outside of the, the possibility of the gospel reaching them. Be encouraged. Again, the works of his hands, Dr. Seigart. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Portland Police Bureau, Oregon State Police, and other local agencies arrested at least 851 people between the 31st of May and September 11th here in the Portland area. According to a mass demonstration index that was compiled by the Multnomah County District Attorney's Office, uh, we are still in the process of reviewing cases and making charging decisions on many. Brent Weisberg, a spokesperson for the DA, said the caveat is if police make an arrest but don't refer a case to our office, that case wouldn't be shown in this index. Well, the once nightly demonstration stalled out after hazardous fumes from several wildfires blanketed the city starting Wednesday the 9th before finally resuming on Friday night, September 18th after crowds gathered at the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Facility in southwest Portland. Eleven were arrested on Friday, raising the uh, known total of local arrests to 862. Street battles between the left and the right could reignite when Western chauvinists, known as the Proud Boys, gather at Delta Park on September 26th. The feds have arrested 98 people near the Mark O. Hatfield Federal Courthouse and U.S. District of Oregon spokesman Kevin Sonoff said 88 now face federal charges. Of those, federal prosecutors are pursuing felony charges in 38 cases and misdemeanor charges in 45. The minimum total number of arrests for now is uh, at least 978. Of the 851 arrested uh, reviewed by the district attorney, 249 have been referred for potential felony charges, while another 599 are listed as misdemeanor charges. A few cases of charges listed as null and other. So far, District Attorney Mike Schmidt has filed charges in 19 cases involving protesters. Alleged crime, including shining a high-powered laser at police, throwing a mortar, firework, a glass bottle, or a shield, possessing a destructive device, firing a gun, assaulting police, or possessing a firearm or body armor while being a felon. On the 19 cases, only one person has been convicted so far after pleading guilty to first-degree arson. Evangelist Franklin Graham has called thousands of families, called on families across the country, pastors and churches, to join him for prayer March 2020 in Washington on September the 26th. Our nation is in trouble, he says. We need God's help. 
I'm announcing today that on September 26th, I'm going to be in our nation's capital to pray. And I hope thousands of families, pastors, churches will join me. Our nation is in trouble and we need God's help. Make plans now to come and you can find uh, more about it at hashtag prayer March 2020. Graham, of course, is the pastor of the Christian charity Samaritan's Purse and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Writing on his Twitter, he said, our only hope for this country is God. Uh, Jack Graham, the pastor of Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano, Texas, responded to the tweet saying, I will be there. I want to invite uh, every pastor and church in the SBC and all others who can to join us. Can you imagine thousands of believers praying together for our broken nation? Now, whether or not you're able to attend from noon to two Eastern time, believers will march from the Lincoln Memorial to the Capitol building, covering 1.8 miles while praying for the nation during extraordinary times, according to the event's website. America is in trouble. It's in distress. But we do have hope. And that hope is in Almighty God. And we need to pray now more than ever more than we have ever done in our lives. Our communities are hurting, our people are divided, and there's fear and uncertainty all around us, he said in a video message on the website, referring to riots and violence across the country and the COVID pandemic. Earlier this month, rioters uh, carrying Black Lives Matter signs through Bibles, uh, that was actually a couple of months ago, Bibles into a fire in front of the federal courthouse in Portland and burned the American flag. Riots in Portland and many other cities across the country have been ongoing since the death of George Floyd on the 25th of May. And according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, the U.S. has had uh, millions of confirmed cases with nearly uh, 163,000 at that time deaths. Um, Gendazine Franklin, the senior pastor of Free Chapel Church in Gainesville, Georgia, also called on Americans to join uh, him for 21 days of fasting and prayer that began the 1st of August. I believe the Lord spoke to me and said uh, to make the the month of August a season of crying out and praying and fasting and turning back to God like never before. And while this is one instance, I know that there are people all around our city, churches, individuals who are praying fervently for our city. Some are on the front lines in locations where protests, peaceful and otherwise, have taken place. They have knelt down and they're crying out to God. Some have come to faith in Christ. Some have uh, returned uh, to their faith in Christ. Some have been baptized. But I know this city is being blanketed by people who are praying, and that uh, should encourage us all and inspire us all to be a part of that uh, a part of that uh, movement. Well, through the uh, this outreach, 50 million uh, parents, uh, I should say Christians, have shared the gospel, reaching 248 million people. We're talking about the Go 2020 um, outreach uh, in which thousands of churches and ministries worldwide uh, dedicated the entire month to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there has been a response. So be encouraged. God is at work. God's people are at work. And the uh, front lines for those who are concerned about the spiritual condition of our neighbors and our nation begins on our knees as we're crying out to God, recognizing that we have some capacity to make some changes, but we are so limited when we have access to the throne of grace. There is no limitation when we cry out to God who has the ability to change the course of a mighty river and to alter the heart of a king when we are given access to him. Uh, in prayer and invited to make our requests known to him, our petitions, our concerns, uh, we would do well to take full advantage of that opportunity. And I hope uh, many of you, many of us are and will.
Well, I began today's program by mentioning that my uh, my friend James Blinn. Now, don't tell him because I don't want him to know. I love this guy to pieces. I love his family. I care about him. He is a dear friend to me, and I hold him near to my heart. This weekend, he lost his father. It wasn't a surprise. His father had been in a facility for quite some time, and due to COVID-19, he and his family hadn't been able to visit like they would have otherwise. They visited him on Saturday, five minutes after they left. His father went home to be with Jesus. And I wanted to close this program with words of encouragement from God's word, not just to James and his family, but to all of us who have lost loved ones. For those of us who were perhaps facing eternity ourselves due to some physical ailment. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians. It's the 15th chapter, and you could read the whole chapter. It's glorious, but I'm beginning with verse 49, and this is my encouragement to you and primarily to my brother James. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brother, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now we're referring in this scripture, I say we, um, it's referring to those who have put their trust in Christ. And that is the case with James' father. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved friend, James, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord and that one day, We will be reunited with your dad, your mom, and our loved ones who have died in the faith because God has prepared a place for us. Please pray for James Blind and his family, and have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.